This morning, uh, we find ourselves in uh, 1 Corinthians once again, in chapter 12, and you have an outline there, and we've been studying about spiritual gifts, and we studied up until we got to verse 11 last week, and really, we've been talking about problems within the Corinthian church, and the problems within the church are many. We reviewed those last week, but one of the things that... um, they had was an issue with spiritual gifts, and that's what we've been looking at. And we'll continue to look at the subject of spiritual gifts all the way till the end of chapter 14. And so we're just at the beginning of this study. And so I ask for your patience as we work our way through this. Um, last couple of weeks, we've looked at the discussion on how this work of the Holy Spirit focuses on the life of the believer. And we've talked about that. We looked at the differences among those who are in the body of Christ, and those differences are caused by God. And we also looked at the design of the gifts as it relates to others. The the spiritual gifts that you have are not a result of um, your own talents or your own abilities, and they're not given to you for your own edification, but God has actually gifted you with certain spiritual gifts so that you could be a blessing not to yourself but to others. Now, obviously, you receive a blessing when you use your spiritual gift to minister to others, but primarily, spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the body of Christ. That's why it's so important when we come together as a body that you're here, first of all, and that you're also exercising your spiritual gift. And so we come to this next section of Scripture here, verses 12 to 27. Now, the overall theme of 1 Corinthians is what's kind of wrong with the Corinthian church. And we've looked at all those those problems um, previously. But the differences among God's people were not, they weren't accepting one another. They, They had a very inward focus. They were focused on themselves. It was a me mentality, not a we mentality. And uh, some thought they were more uh, blessed than others because of certain gifts. And so we, we studied and we looked at this and we realized that, no, each of us has our own spiritual gifts and those gifts are given to us by the Holy Spirit as he wills, not as we will. And so we wanted to make sure that we understand that. Well, I want to ask you to stand one more time as we read this text of Scripture. And I'm just going to read um, for time's sake verses 12 and 13, because that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But you can continue down if you want in your own time and read the rest of it. We'll cover that next week. But beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all, there's the word, baptized into one body, both Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Father, we ask that you would bless this word to our hearts this morning as we look at these two verses. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is an interesting section of Scripture. Uh, Needless to say, it's a very, very... It can be a very, very difficult section of Scripture to work through. And so I've been studying this for weeks, trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this, and what do I believe about this? (laughs) Um, It's simple in one sense. Uh, It clearly says, 
um, something very simple, but it's also very complex in another sense. It's simple because it's just the body with many members. That's the illustration that he's using. If you look at your own body, your own physical body, you can relate to that. You have feet, you have toes, you have hands, you have fingers, you have a nose, you have ear. They're all different members, but it's all one body. That's a pretty simple illustration. And obviously, the many members that are given here in the illustration that Paul gives us represents each one of us within the body of Christ. But he also says we're all one in the Lord. And so I want to look at this, this principle of the body of Jesus Christ. And this is basically what this, the rest of this chapter covers. And we're just going to get through the first two verses tonight, or this morning. So there's both unity and diversity being taught here. They seem like polar opposites. How can you have unity and diversity exactly the same? Well, let's start with the nature of the body of Christ, which is in verses 12 and 13. I'll give you several things here we'll talk about. First of all, the nature of the body of Christ. In verse um, 12 to 13, it tells us, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We want to look at four things here as we work through this. Four things. First of all, we want to see the comparison to the physical body. That's what he's doing. That's what Paul does. It's kind of obvious one body, many members. He's, he's referring to a body. It's compared to the physical body that you and I have. So we can relate to that. We can understand that. One body with many members. Now, Paul isn't trying to insult our intelligence here. He's not saying, boy, you people are really stupid and I've got to give you something really basic. He's trying to lay out some very in-depth principles with a rather unique illustration. And he wants us to understand that God has given us this to bless us in the lives of our own lives and in the lives of other people. Now, if we were going to put this in a statement that might help us, what Paul is saying here, and I put it in your outline, that many are one, but one is not many. You've got to put on your thinking cap this morning, okay? We're going to go through a lot of material. That many are one, but one is not many. See, one of the dangers that happens in our churches today, in any group of believers for that matter, is that someone tends to exalt him or herself beyond what the Bible clearly says they should be exalted. It happens a lot of times in ministry. The Bible is very clear. The one who is to be exalted within the body of Christ is who? Is the head, right? Who's the head? Jesus Christ. says so in the Bible in both Ephesians and Colossians, that he is the head. We don't need another head. The pastor isn't the head. The elder isn't the head. The worship leader isn't the head. The only head that we need, the only head that we have as a church, as a body of Christ, is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But in the illustration, he's not only the head, he is the whole body. say, well, I don't quite understand what you're saying. Let me try to explain it. In the physical body of Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Colossians, if you want to turn over there, you can, the references in your outline, I think, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. It tells us there, Paul tells us that all the fullness of God, in other words, everything that God is and ever can be, 
It's kind of a wrong statement because God can never be anything because he is everything, right? But everything that God is dwells in the body of Jesus Christ. It tells us there, for in him, in Christ, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you, plural, believers, have been filled or made complete, some translations read, in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. See, the problem with the church is today we don't understand that as believers, we are complete in Christ. Amen? We don't need anything more. Now, that sounds simplistic to a lot of people, especially if people are dealing with issues. They want to find a book on how to deal with their alcoholism. They want to find a book on how to deal with their drug abuse. They want to find a book on how to deal with their infidelity or whatever it might be. If you have Christ, that's all you need. That's all you need. That's why we believe here in this church in biblical counseling. Biblical counseling underlines, underscores that point, that Christ is all-sufficient. His word, as a result of him being all-sufficient, his word is all-sufficient. So when we come to a problem in our lives, we don't need to go scour the Christian bookstores or online Amazon to find a Christian book that can help us out. We need to what? Go to the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading Christian books, obviously. But so many times, Christian people, that's their first go. That's where they go first. And so they want to hear man's wisdom, man's philosophy. And the Bible says, no, all you need is Christ. You are full in him. And in Christ, if you have Christ, in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. So whatever represents the nature of God dwelt in the physical body of Jesus. Now hear me. The important thing is, no other person on earth besides Jesus Christ, the Messiah, no other person on earth could ever say that. It's impossible. You could never say, all the fullness of God dwells within me. It's impossible. So what happens? You extend that to the church, which is called the body. What Paul is saying is you have to have a group of people to formulate Christ's body. It's so vast. You can't just have one person. You have to have a group of people to formulate a body. That's the church. You cannot have one person who manifests all the characteristics, all the attitudes, All the attributes of the Lord. That's impossible. So what did God do? God gave us the church, and he said, you know what? I'm going to distribute out these gifts. I'm going to distribute out all of the glory of God within all these members, but they're one body. Now what that means is we have to be careful that we don't overemphasize the importance of one person's life manifesting the beauty of the Lord. We also need to be careful that we don't underestimate someone's life of power and influence. So it's very important, and that happens a lot in churches today. 
You know, it seems like whoever's in the front is glorified, is lifted up above all others. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The only thing, the only difference between you and me is I'm facing that way and you're facing this way. That's it. So this is a difficult subject. Well, we're about to get into it almost. It's kind of like a, a paradox. When you think about it, you want your life, I know I want my life, to manifest the qualities and the attributes of Jesus Christ. Do you not? We're called Christians. We want to be like Christ. I know that I need, desperately need, the Lord's help for that. Because, just talk to my wife, left on my own, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. We all are. I need to control the Holy Spirit each and every day, and so do you. But it's impossible for me to manifest all the characteristics, even with the Holy Spirit, of my Lord all by myself. It's just impossible. I can't do it. Even his wonderful love. I need other believers to help me in that process. And so, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, this is what Paul says here. We're told that with all the saints that we must comprehend the dimensions of the love of God. He says, for this reason I bow my knees, verse 14, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that may... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, look at what it says, all by yourself? No. What? With all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height? And to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. See, as we all work together, we see the fullness of what a Lord's life can mean within a group of people, the church, who choose to honor him as their head and allow his spirit to control them on a daily basis. It's very important we understand that many of us are really one. (laughs) That's what it's saying. Many of us are really one. And the one we're talking about is the life and the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're not here to exalt our own abilities, our own talents, but we're here to let the love of the Lord be seen in us, right? The many are one, namely the Lord, but one is not many. There's no one member of the body, no one member of the church that is everybody else. Just look around. We're all different. We look different. We act different. We have different personalities. We have different giftings. We have different talents. We come from different backgrounds. And yet we're all one. That's why we need each other. To show that glory of God that he wants the church to represent. It would be impossible for the church just to be one person. So when we look at the nature of the body of Christ, we start out with the fact that it's compared to our physical body. Well, secondly, it's also carried out by the Holy Spirit. It tells us there in verse 13. It's very obvious that it's carried out by the Holy Spirit. How do we get this thing to be one body? We're all different. How does this happen? How does it work? The Bible says that by one spirit, we are all, look at the word, baptized into one body. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person with traditional backgrounds, and maybe it makes you feel a little uncomfortable being around Gentiles with their pagan backgrounds. It's irrelevant. We're all one in the body of Christ. Or maybe you come from a pagan background, and you come into the church, and all of a sudden you're around Jewish believers who have all these other traditions, and you're going, man, what is this about? Maybe you're even an atheist or an agnostic. It doesn't matter. When you come to know the Lord, you have a whole lot of background. We all do. Some people call it baggage, whatever it might be. And when you come into the church, maybe you run into somebody that has little baggage. They don't have any background at all, maybe, in the world. Maybe they were saved at a young age and were blessed with a Christian upbringing. Well, those people are dynamically just completely different how they look at life. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're bond or free, whether you're slave or you're a free person and you own your own property, no matter who you are, that's what Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? The question is, how does that happen? The person sitting next to you, or in your row, guess what? They're not like you. They're not like you. Now, for some of us who are married, that might be a little uncomfortable. Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse. You're going, yeah, tell me about it, okay? But they are not like you. In fact, you know what? There is no one, listen, on the face of the earth like you. We're all our own little snowflake. <laughs> We're individuals. We've been created by God individually for his purpose. I mean, just talk to some of your friends. If they're honest with you, they'll say, yeah, you're a little weird. <laughs> you're different than me. You don't like the things I do. You don't do things the way I would. Just talk to your spouse. They'll tell you the same thing. But God created all that. And you know what? He doesn't say, boy, what a mess. All these people are different. He says, man, this is great. This is incredible. This blesses my heart. I I created them all differently for a purpose. And one of the purposes of this diversity is to understand the unity that we have together within the body of Christ. Diversity is essential for unity. But most churches teach just the opposite. Most churches teach that you have to agree with me, or you have to agree with the church, and then we're going to get along just fine. That's not what the Bible teaches. The diversity that we have within the body of Christ is essential to have and display the unity that that God is talking about here in this text. His unity is among people who are quite different. And how they do things, and how they have their gifts displayed, and how they work, and how their their, uh, different results by using their gifts, they're all different. But all of that diversity comes our unity. As we love each other, we're all contributing, we're all manifesting to the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ what we would do in any given situation. And it is carried out by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this baptism of the Spirit. It's very important. It's a very divisive issue in churches today. But it says there, by one Spirit are we baptized into one body. Here's a couple notes on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully this helps you. First of all, the word baptism in text, in the, in the scriptures, and the word filling in the original languages, they're not the same word, they're different words, but they can actually be used as synonyms sometimes. I found this kind of interesting. Uh, there was actually a story of a, a warship in the Grecian Empire and when you look at the original language, the Greek language in which it was written, in the same paragraph, this, this, uh, it talks about this warship being sunk in the Aegean Sea. In the same paragraph describing what happened to the ship, it says it was baptized and it was filled with water in the original Greek. Two different words meaning the same thing. So they're kind of symbols. The Greek language is very exact, and sometimes there's synonyms that can be used interchangeably. So sometimes we might be stretching just a little bit the distinction between these two words when we come across them in Scripture. Now, with that being said, there are differences. I'm not saying there isn't a difference between being filled and being baptized. There is. The word baptism or the word baptized, unlike the word filled, guess what? It's never been translated into English from Greek. The original Greek word is baptizo. And what do we call it? We say baptize. They didn't come up with a new word in English for it. Kind of interesting. Some people say because they couldn't really understand what it was saying in some of the text. Some people wanted to say, well, maybe it means sprinkle, maybe it means pour, maybe it means submerge, whatever. Whether that's true or not. But in the English Bible, you'll find the word baptism and baptized in various forms, 116 times in the New Testament. In the original Greek, you find it 123 times in its various forms. So it's not a small subject we're about to embark on. Secondly, there are various kinds of baptism in the New Testament, and I put those in your outline there. Various kinds. First of all, probably the one that we're most familiar with is what? Water baptism, Right? Water, I was talking to someone this morning about being baptized here. And by the way, if you're interested in being biblically baptized, we'll hopefully be having a class sometime in the fall. Um, and we can take you through that class. And we have a baptism up here. We fill it up with nice warm water, and you'll be able to give your testimony, and then we baptize you. We, we believe that, that water baptism is by submersion. And that's because in the New Testament, wherever someone was baptized, they went down into the water. Okay, so it's, it's something, it's a term that means to dip and dye. If you're going to dye your shirt red, you would take the shirt and you would submerge it in red dye. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35 and 38, this is probably the most common use of the word baptism. This is where Philip was baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch who came to believe in Jesus. He was... Uh, a follower of Christ, it says, And the eunuch said to Philip in verse 34, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us the whole process of this person coming to Christ. That's just understood by the text. 
And it says, as they continued to drive down the road after this person made a, the eunuch made a profession of faith, it says they were going along the road and they came upon some water. And the eunuch said, hey, well, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. So it's, it's a very interesting portion of Scripture. He said, here's the water. What prevents me to be baptized? So Jesus also used this when he told us to go out into all the world, right, and to baptize, disciple, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, water baptism, guess what, does not save you. Some people say, well, when you get baptized in water, it washes away all your sins. What? Think about it. Think about that statement. Well, if I got water to wash away all my sins, what do I need the blood of Christ for, right? Just take a shower every day or two or three, whatever, you know. It, it, it's just, it, it's totally against what the Bible says. Water baptism is just an outward sign of an inward change in your life. You're just showing people, hey, I'm, I'm following Christ now. It's a picture that you died. You went down in the waters and you came up and you're a new person in Christ. Going down and coming up doesn't make you a new person. You already did that when you committed your life to Christ. God did that in you. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us a little bit more about water baptism. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, verse 20, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Think about that. We think the world's bad today. There was a time in an age where God wiped everybody out across the face of the earth with a flood because of the wickedness of their hearts. And the good thing is, you know what? He promised he'd never do it again. <laughs> or we may be seeing that going on right now. Who knows? With all the craziness going on. Verse 21, though, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying baptism is a testimony of your faith. It reveals that you've been reconciled with God. It's an illustration of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we believe that submersion is the correct way for believers' baptism. So that's water baptism. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says in verses 1 and 2, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all, what's it say? Were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the fire. So it speaks of a baptism through this cloud and this sea. It also talks in Matthew chapter 20 and in Mark more specifically, it depends on what translation you have. If you have the King James, it's in Matthew. Um, if you have the ESV, it's in Mark. Um, but it talks about the baptism of suffering. I'll read the section out of Mark, chapter 10, verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Pretty good question. And they said in verse 37, grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I mean, they had no idea what they were asking for, right? And Jesus said to them just that. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink, listen, the cup that I drink? He's speaking of his suffering, the cup of suffering that he was about to take on. He says, are you able to drink of that cup or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him rather self-confidently, oh, we are able. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. (laughs) In other words, you're all going to suffer. And they did. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So there's a baptism of suffering that is spoken of in the Scriptures. There's also a baptism of fire. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 3, this is interesting, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, this is John the Baptist speaking, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I can't even unlatch his sandals. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And a lot of people say, especially in the charismatic movement, oh, that's talking about the the tongues of cloven fire in the book of Acts. No, it's not. It's not saying that at all. Look at the next verse. In verse 12, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's not talking about the cloven tongues of Acts 2. It's talking about the wrath of God in eternal hell. So Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, is talking about a believer, those who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then those who are going to be baptized with fire are those who are unfortunately going to go to hell because of the rejection of the gospel. But we also have another kind of baptism, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the baptism of the Spirit. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Six of which are contrasted with water baptism. The water baptism of John the Baptist. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look at this. So there's differences in how the Bible speaks of the baptism of the Spirit. Seven times it's used with this little word in the original language, E-N, N. And it's really of the dative form. And it's, it's used with a noun, but it, it, it basically means this, by means of. By means of. When it speaks of the, the baptism of the Spirit, seven times it uses that word, by means of. And it's a work that's done by Jesus Christ, by the way. He's the one that baptizes us. He's the baptizer by means of the Holy Spirit. So what we're really interested in this phrase here in this text is baptized by the Spirit. It's only mentioned seven times in the Bible. Six of those times are exactly the same remark. It says it over and over again. Acts 1 is one of those, one of those times. It says, while staying with him in verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of me, for John baptized, there's the word, that's one of the the times it's being used, with water, and then it contrasts, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So six of the seven 
usages of this word, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they all say the same thing, exactly what we just read in Acts. You can, all, you can look them up on your own. Not one of them tells us what it is. It just says it will happen. It doesn't describe what it is. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't help us. That's all we know. There's only one time in Scripture where the text reveals what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Guess where it's at? It's in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because it says, by one spirit are you all baptized into one body. That's the only time that it describes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The other ones, it just says, well, you'll be baptized with the Spirit. There are also different, some differences in the Bible about the usage of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so when we, we see that little preposition there, by means of, that's in the original language. It's used that way most of all. So every time we are translated, it means that we're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who baptizes us by means of the Holy Spirit. Now in our text, it says by one Spirit we are baptized into, into the body of Christ. So there's a little difference here than what a lot of people are teaching or saying In our text, we're told the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, at least in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, is what? The purpose is to make us part of the body of Christ. Now, flip back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning. I'm just asking for your patience because we've got to lay this foundation so we understand this subject fully. I don't believe that that tells us all we need to know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, on the night of the resurrection, when Jesus arose from the dead, what did he do? He met with his disciples. You remember that in the upper room? And the Bible tells us that what did he have to do? He had to rebuke them. (laughs) Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. They had a hard heart, and it was an unbelieving heart. That's what it tells us. According to the Bible, all the disciples forsook Jesus at the cross. All of them did. And the night of the resurrection, Jesus appears to them, and he he actually scared them. They thought, well, whoa, is this a ghost? What's going on? Are we being haunted here? And he calmed them down, and he said that, hey, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. And he invited them to what? To reach out and touch him. I mean, they literally did. According to 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, two of the guys weren't there. Two of the disciples. You remember who they are? Judas clearly wasn't there, right? He had already gone out and what? Committed suicide. He hung himself. But also, Thomas wasn't there. He didn't show up till eight days later. But the other disciples were there. And so, when Jesus appeared to them on that night of the resurrection... In the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, it says that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you can read commentaries, and a lot of people say, Well, nothing really happened there. It was just, you know, he just breathed on them. I tend to believe that something did happen. 
I mean, Jesus doesn't just breathe on you and nothing happens. I mean, this is Jesus who breathed and the world became the world, right? He created everything. So when he breathes, something happens. And I believe that very night, the night of the resurrection, when he breathed on them, listen, they were all born again. He just got done rebuking them for their unbelief. They were regenerated. They were spiritually awakened. They saw the resurrected Christ, and you know what? They believed. He said, receive the Spirit, which is always the language of coming to know the Lord. You look throughout the Scripture, whenever you see that, someone receives the Spirit, it's talking about coming to know the Lord. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, guess what? You're not a believer. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit, guess what? Does not belong to him. So it's impossible for you to be a believer or anyone to be a believer who doesn't have the Spirit. So you have to receive the Spirit. You come to Christ, and you receive the Spirit. Here's my point. That was the night of the resurrection. Now, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, look at what it says there. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering of many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So he resurrects, he meets with the disciples, but then he goes on, and he's on earth for 40 days. That's a lot of time, right? And he says he's speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Acts 1-4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere, but wait for the promise of the Father. What is that? Which he said, you heard of me. Verse 5, for John baptized. There's another one of the, the words. With water. That's one of the seven usages. But you will be, look at what it says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? People are still asking that question today. When's all this going to happen? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, verse 8, but you will what? What's it say? Receive power when the Holy Spirit, look at what it says, has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now this gives us a little more indication of what we're talking about here. If they received the Spirit the night of the resurrection and they were born again, and then they had 40 days at least that's gone by. He's going to ascend into heaven soon, and he tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to baptize them not many days from now. It was exactly 10 days, as we know from the story. So here we see these guys who became born again and received the Holy Spirit they really believed that Jesus was who he claimed he said he was. Forty days go by, and now the Lord's going to send them, and he tells them, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, which is ten days later. And guess what? Ten days later, 
He said, when the Holy Spirit is come, and you know what? He changed the preposition. He changed it. It's not in. It's not being baptized by means of the Spirit, but the Greek preposition is epi, English, E-P-I, which means upon. What's he saying? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive what? Not eternal life. They already had that. What's he say? They will receive what? Power. Why? To be his witnesses throughout the world. See, here's the first problem we have about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 is talking about when you become a Christian. You become part of the body of Christ. The, the term baptism is one of the very commonest words in the Greek language of the New Testament. Matter of fact, if you had lost someone that was close to you, you, know, you might say, boy, you know, I'm just overwhelmed with grief. Well, if you were Greek and you spoke in the Greek language, you would say something like, man, my heart is just baptized with sorrow. That's how common it was. It's not a spiritual word by any means. It's a very common word, and it's used in many different ways. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, our text, all believers are baptized into one body. We would say that every believer has the Holy Spirit, or you're not a believer. When you become born again through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive that deposit. You receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you this. Just because you have the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has you. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? See, in the Bible, what happened on the day of Pentecost was somehow additional. It was subsequent to their being born again. The night of the resurrection, they were born again. And so they were baptized. And they were, you could say whatever you want, touched, filled, overwhelmed, that many days later by the Holy Spirit. It's something different than just being born again. Now, I grew up saying, oh, you know, well, baptism happens once at your salvation. And then the filling of the Spirit is subsequent, and that's what we're going to talk about next. And that's true. But you also have to understand that in Scripture, it's described as something where we receive some form of power. But we're baptized once into the body of Christ. So the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we're familiar with this text. It talks about being filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, talks about an experience as being filled with the Holy Spirit. That word, that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, appears eight times in the New Testament. They're there in your text or in your outline if you want to look them up. It literally means to be continually filled, continually controlled you might say. Matter of fact, in Ephesians, it gives the illustration of being drunk with wine. Uh, That's what it says. It says in verse 15, Ephesians 5, look careful then how you walk. Don't be be unwise, but be wise. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. What's he say? But understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, how do you do that, Paul? 
In verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. Don't allow some foreign substance to control you, for that is debauchery. That's wrong. But be what? Filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is you're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, being controlled by the Holy Spirit is kind of like being controlled by wine. <laughs> if you've ever drank too much wine or too much alcohol, you understand what it means to be drunk. A force that is outside of your body is now controlling your attitudes, your reactions. That's why it's dangerous to drink and drive, right? Because your reactions are dulled. So we're supposed to be controlled by, filled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what your normal, natural behavior is, that could be very irritating to people. But you know what? When you're filled with the Spirit, God kind of takes the edge off that. When the Holy Spirit is controlling you, what happens? Your attitudes all of a sudden reflect the attitude of Christ. You, you begin to think, well, what would Christ do in this situation? How would Christ respond in this situation? The result of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is things like, Galatians tells us what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. All of those fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, singular, all of a sudden they become more evident when you're under the control of the Spirit. Now, a lot of times this happens in difficult situations. At least in my own life, it does. A lot of times you're in a crisis situation, and I've noticed that, wow, why did I even react that way? Maybe someone's rude to you. They come up and they insult you or, or someone you know, does something that's just an assault to you. And you look back and you go, wow, I don't even know why I was, I, I responded that way. As a matter of fact, it kind of ticks me off I responded that way. I should have, you know. But see, I, I wasn't under control of the flesh at that point, right? I was under control of the spirit. And a lot of times that happens in our lives. Think back. Maybe you went to the doctor and you got that horrible diagnosis. And yet, God somehow gave you the grace to deal with it. You're sitting here today in your right mind. You haven't lost your mind. And you're going, you know what? I'm just going to trust Christ through this. That's, that's the filling of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. It controls your attitudes. And it happens a lot of times in difficult situations. And it's really for the honor and the glory of God. Because people see you in those situations and they go, wow, how, how did you respond that way? It's not you, right? It's the work of the Spirit in your life. So we're not simply talking here about what we need to get straight, but there's something different about being controlled by the Holy Spirit as a believer, being placed into the body of Christ, which happens when you become a Christian. That's baptism. Now, go back over there to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So number one, in dealing with the nature of the body of Christ, we see that it's compared to the physical body. Secondly, we see that it's carried out by the Spirit. But thirdly, it's connected with salvation. We kind of already said this. He says, all made to drink, verse 13, into one Spirit. 
Almost every time it discusses the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the whole issue of spiritual baptism, it's connected with somebody's salvation. You can look in, in Acts. You can look uh, Acts chapter 10. Um, you can look down at uh, Acts chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. For time's sake, you can look at all those. Uh, Acts chapter 19, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Or Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? They believed. We're buried together, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by, trample, by triumphing over them in him. Talking of salvation. So it's connected to salvation. The last point here under this is it's concerned with making Gentiles a part of the body of Christ with Jews. This is an interesting subject, to say the least. You know, as a Gentile and as someone who has been in the church for a long time, um, I don't believe that John the Baptist started the Baptist church. You say, what do you mean? I think what we understand the church to be in the real sense began on the day of Pentecost, right? It's mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Now, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, guess who these people were? They were Jews. They were Jewish people. The people who made up the New Testament church were Jewish. And guess what? They were still practicing their Judaism. They went to the temple. They were still offering their sacrifices. They had their Jewish festivals. All that stuff. But all of a sudden, there was a difference. These Jews now came to believe that the Messiah had come in the form of Jesus Christ. They believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. That's what they believed. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And the book of Acts, like chapter 24, makes it clear that there are different sects in Judaism. Um, there's a lot of different sects in Judaism even today over there. You, you hear about it in politics. You know, you hear the Labor Party, right? That's a sect of Judaism or the Likud party, or the Shahs, whatever it might be. Now, in the days of our Lord, we had different sects. We had the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Essenes. But you also had a, a sect called the 
Netzerites, not the Nazarites. <laughs> it's an unfortunate translation in our Bibles. It's the Netzerites. And it comes from the, the Hebrew word Netzer, N-E-T-S-E-R. And that word means branch. It refers to young branches or sprouts. It's used in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, listen, a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteous. So this word netzer or branch refers to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament. So these were believers, you could say, in the branch, in the Messiah. And they had come and they were called netzerites, which doesn't have anything to do with Nazareth or Nazarenes. They're people of the branch. They're Messianic Jews but they're still practicing their Judaism. This is all fresh to them, right? They're still practicing their Judaism. And just by the book of Acts and even secular history, this group, this sect, spread like wildfire. It tells us in the thing on the first day, there was 3,000 people saved. Later, there was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Forty years later, Josephus wrote in church history that these Christians, these Messianic Jews, now numbered over 100,000 in Jerusalem. So these were Messianic Jews. Now, I just want to give you a little brief church history. In the account in Acts, when the Gentiles are given the gospel by Peter... At Acts 10, they're given the gospel. Peter gives it to the Gentiles. And then the church discusses it in chapter 11. And then finally, as you read through the book of Acts, you come to chapter 15, and there's this big church council. Well, what was the problem? What were they having a council about? Well, they were having a council about how do we let these Gentiles into the church? How do they let these Gentiles into the Jewish hope of the Messiah? I mean, it's like oil and water, right? I mean, it's a toot and mix, clearly, Jew and Gentile. So the Jews were saying, okay, we've come to Christ. We know that this is a new thing. It's the church. But now we're seeing these Gentiles come to Christ. What do we do with them? See, today we, in our churches, we have this reverse logic we think about it totally the opposite. The churches of our world today are primarily controlled by Gentiles, right? Across the board. Nobody would argue that. Gentile Christians. And they believe it even in their, in their missionary enterprises. If, if you've ever heard some of these people talk about someone who has come to Christ who's Jewish. A Jewish person who comes to understand that Jesus is their Messiah. They're saved. A lot of times what they'll call them is, oh, they're a completed Jew. You ever hear that term? I've heard that a lot. Why don't they say, oh, you're a completed Gentile? You ever think about that? We, we have a, a misunderstanding 
So what has happened in those 2,000 years plus since we got this whole thing mixed up? We got it turned around. We don't understand it correctly. The miracle (laughs) is that any Gentiles got in. That's the miracle. Not that any Jews were let in. It's completely the opposite in Scripture. I mean, it was a Jewish thing from the very beginning. Think about it. What they had, they had the Jewish Bible. I mean, they didn't have the New Testament written during this time. I mean, some people think if you don't have a New Testament, you can't preach the gospel. That's not true. I mean, ask yourself, what'd they do? They never got their New Testaments until probably 51 A.D., at the earliest. Well, what were they doing for 20 years since the death and resurrection of Christ? They used the only Bible they had, the 22 Hebrew books of the Old Testament, or in our Protestant Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Same text is just divided up differently. You see, the problem here is what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What's this whole thing of one body? The primary issue is how Gentiles who come out of a purely secular pagan society could come and fellowship in ministry with those of the Jewish background who have also come to Christ. They had their own standards. They had standards like the, the Shabbat, right? The Sabbath. I mean, God instructed them very clearly to honor the Sabbath. That's Saturday, by the way. It's not Sunday. And there was no option for this in the Jewish faith. This is an everlasting commitment to the Jewish people. Now, is it telling them that they have to go to synagogue or they go to church on Saturday? No, it has nothing to do with that. What does it say? The command says... You know, I mean, if they want to do that, that's fine. But the command says, don't do any manual labor on the Sabbath. Is this for Gentiles? No, it's not. It's for those of the Jewish faith. I mean, that helps us explain when we get to Romans 14, right? When all the arguments, when they're having all these arguments over days and diets and feasts and all this other stuff. That's why they were having all these arguments. They also not just had the Sabbath that they were committed to, they also had their own kosher diet. Jewish people are supposed to eat a kosher diet. That's what they're called to do. Now, you know, I know enough Jewish people to know they don't like it. They don't want it. They can't have any pork. So maybe they sneak some bacon in once in a while and cook the sin out of it or whatever. But, you know, they can't have lobster. They can't have crab. They can't have shrimp, all the good things. An Orthodox Jew would never eat that. But guess what? Is that for Gentiles? No. Now, you can go to your local Christian bookstore or online and find a Christian book that, oh, yeah, it's, it's good for you. It's, it's for Gentiles, too. No, it's not. doesn't apply to Gentiles. It all applies to Jews. Why? Why would God do this? Because God wanted his people to be separate, to be brought out from the world, to develop his prophetic plan through them to show them his own character. 
to show them that, you know what, I'm a God of love, I'm a God of faithfulness, I'm a God of forgiveness. No matter how awful you have been, Israel, I'm never going to cast you away and I'm going to forgive you. That's all his promises to them. And guess what? It wasn't based on their performance. He didn't choose Israel because they were a great group of people. Guess what? He didn't choose you because you're a good person either. (laughs) Nor me. Well, how is this going to work? You end up in 1 Corinthians 12. You have Jews and Gentiles in Corinth, in the church. You have these secular pagan Gentiles who are going to eat anything. (laughs) And Jews that have this restricted diet. How are you going to put them in one body? How is this going to happen? I mean, Gentiles like myself, I like steak. I like my steak medium rare. I like a little blood on the plate. Okay? To a Jew, they would never do that. They're they're, they're not supposed to have anything to do with blood. Period. That's offensive to a Jewish person if they're orthodox and they're believing. They're not supposed to get close to blood. Matter of fact, they drain the animals of all the blood before they ever cook or eat anything. Matter of fact, in the scriptures, it tells us don't, don't strangle like livestock and then eat it. Why? Because the blood's still in it. Now, I would say, well, that gives you more flavor, right? But, but that, that's not what they're supposed to do. And that's God's command to them, not to a Gentile. So they had this weird diet that God gave them. So you have this big council dealing with all these issues in Acts 15. But then they also came out of an idolatrous background. Remember, the Gentiles were very idolatrous. They had little idols everywhere, you know, on the dashboard of their chariots, everywhere. I mean, it's just they just came out of that kind of background. Well, that's just the opposite of what God instructed the Jews, right? Don't you ever create it, any idol. They were very immoral. They had intimate relations in, in the name of their own religion, some of these Corinthians. It was part of the way of life. And now they become believers in Jesus and they bring all this ugly, non-Jewish lifestyle with them into the church. And so the Jewish believers in the New Testament church said, hey, wait a minute, this can't be right. How is this going to work? How is this ever going to work? So they had this big council in Acts chapter 15. You can read about it. And they came to a decision. And it's never changed. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't even think about it. They looked at the Hebrew prophets in the Bible and the prophecies that were there prophesied that there would be a multitude of Gentiles who would come to know the Messiah. So they looked at the church and these Gentiles coming and they say, wow, this is, this is God fulfilling his prophecy. If you talk to a mature believer who's Jewish today, they don't look at the church and say, why are all these Gentiles in the church? They don't. Why? Because it's prophetic. It's a fulfillment of God's prophecy. But on the other hand, a lot of Jews will say, don't leave us out. Don't leave us out. All these things don't apply to Gentiles. They apply to Jews. Because he created these people, to be a picture of his faithfulness. 
So he says, stay away from idols. What they said in Acts 15, stay away from idols, Gentiles. Don't, don't go there. Uh, stay away from sexual sin. Stay away from things strangled and from blood to be a good testimony within the church for other Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. So the problem of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was how to make Gentiles and Jews get together with all their different thinking and backgrounds and love each other and not kill each other over how extremely different they were. Quickly look over at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. So we see it's compared to the physical body. It's carried out by the Holy Spirit. It's connected with salvation. It's concerned with making Gentiles a part of the body of Christ. The Jews weren't the ones on the outside, beloved. The Gentiles were. How do we make them one? Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... And look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you all are one in Christ. See, many Gentile Christians say to their Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters who come to Christ, they say, well, you have to give up all your Judaism now. You have to give up all your Jewish stuff or you're not a real Christian. That's, that's what happens today in the modern-day church. That isn't what it says in, this, in, in Galatians. It doesn't say that. It says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So what's that mean? Are we supposed to all become Gentiles in the New Testament church? No. There's neither Gentile either. It says there's neither male nor female. So when a woman comes to Christ, do you expect her to give up her femaleness? No. So why do we expect Jews to give up their Judy, Judaistic background? The problem was how to get Gentiles to become one who come out of a very secular, pagan, and sometimes religious background, which was foreign to the Jewish way of life. How do you make them one with Jewish people? That's the problem. It tells us over in Ephesians chapter 2, talks about the unity of the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace. Look at what it says, who made us both... Who is that talking about? Jew and Gentile, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, Jews have not only to have 613 commandments in the Old Testament. That's what they were called to obey. They not only had that, but then the Pharisees and the Sad, they, they all threw extra traditions on them. And so they laid all of them, all this stuff, a load that they couldn't even bear. The Jewish people could hardly bear it. And Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders for following the traditions of man and not the commandment of God. 
So we're not here advocating tradition that, you know, we should do the Sabbath and all that. We're not. We're advocating what God says and what he doesn't say. A lot of things don't even apply to Gentiles, but they do apply to someone who's Jewish. How do you make them one? The answer is when Jesus died on the cross, he solved the problem. Why? Because all of the law's demands, the Bible says the soul that sins, what? Must die, right? All the law's demands, all the penalties for not keeping the law involves death. And when the Lord himself died on the cross, he fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. He didn't destroy the law, the Bible says, but he fulfilled it. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it, Christ says. He's satisfied would be a good way of phrasing it. All the righteous demands of the law. So when you put your faith, your trust, in the finished work of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior at the cross, you have to understand the debt, the payment, the penalty has already been solved. It's paid in full, amen? By one sacrifice of the Lamb of God, which all the previous sacrifices pointed to. There were illustrations, Hebrews says. They were a shadow of that which was to come. And when he died, he bought, brought it all together into one body because the problem between us was solved by the Messiah himself. What is the body the church called? Is it called the body of the Baptists? The body of the Presbyterians? The body of the Methodists? No, it's called the what? The body of Christ. So the very fact that Jews and Gentiles being one begins by the death of Jesus Christ, solves the problem that was between the two of us. And he talks about the mystery in Ephesians 3. Well, what was this mystery that he talks about? The mystery was, how how do you put these two together? The mystery is not that the Jews should be part of it. That's not the mystery. They were the recipients of the promises of God all along. The mystery is that How do you put these Gentiles into the church? How do you make them fellow heirs? How would they be joint heirs with Christ, Jew and Gentile together? And finally, in Ephesians 4, it tells us there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and there's the word, what? One baptism. It's not talking about water baptism talking about the baptism of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when it says you're baptized into one body, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I know this is a longer sermon, but Lord, I just pray that it gelled in our hearts, that we understand a little more about what it means to be baptized into the body of Christ. I pray that we would understand what it means to have unity within the body of Christ, that this is something that's a work of the Holy Spirit, making us one by baptizing us into one body, whether we're Jew or Gentile, male or female. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that makes Gentiles, especially a part of the body with all the promises of God, which were made to the Jewish people. That's why... Israel has such a tender place in our heart. We're all one body. 
I guess the question this morning is the same question I started out with. The question is not whether you believe in God. The question to ask yourself is, do you believe God? Do you believe what His Word is telling us? It's very clear that we're all sinners and we need God's grace. If you're here this morning and you have yet to place your faith, your trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I pray that you would be prompted to do so. That your heart would not let you rest until you cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me to live for you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you're giving me as I commit to Christ as a deposit of your promise to save me for all eternity. And for believers, I just pray that as we leave this place that we would be understanding that we can't do this life on our own. Yeah, we have the Spirit because we're baptized into the body of Christ, but the question is, does the Spirit have us? Are we living each day to the fullness of the Spirit? Not in our own wisdom, but trusting the Spirit of God to work out the life of Christ in us for your glory. We ask you to bless our fellowship time afterwards and bless the rest of our day and week. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Because we went so late, I'm just going to end it right there. Okay, So you're dismissed. God bless you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>